0: Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. As you know, there have been a few times during our A Living Hope and Hopeless Times study that Michael has had to go back into the studio and re-record his teaching. And so that happens on this episode today, and Michael will be teaching from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7.
1: From an eloquent section, probably an early Christian hymn, exalting Christ as our example in suffering, Peter's attention now turns to the home. In this section, if you're familiar with it at all, one of the first observations is that Peter devotes far more instruction to the wife than to the husband, which of course can upset our modern ears. In defense, you may recall that Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, spends far more time addressing the husband than the wife. <laughs> so maybe we can say that softens the blow. Most of us have heard the old saw, submission is knowing when to duck so God can hit your husband. My wife has written a great book called Dancing with the One You Love. This is Shameless Wife Promotion. Uh, it's a book about living out submission in the real world, and you can find information on the In Context site about the book, and you can order it anywhere online where books are sold. In chapter one, Cindy begins, I am opinionated, I am independent, I am strong-willed, I am not afraid to make decisions, I am happy to take leadership, I am confident, I am also submissive to my husband. To many women, this seems like a confession of a person at Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, hi, I'm Cindy, and I'm submissive. Even writing those words rankles me. If I am all those things I say I am, opinionated, independent, confident, why did God choose me to be submissive? What was God thinking? Her book is unusual and unique in many ways, number one, because she doesn't shy away from what the scripture teaches, but what she does in her book is not just tell people what submission is and isn't. She talks to a number of women around the country that live in, let's say, less than traditional relationships. For example, a woman who's a primary caregiver to her husband who has a chronic illness. What does submission look like in that marriage? Uh, a person who is a power broker, a woman who is a very powerful individual, married to a man that is not as powerful, a woman who makes more money than her husband. A, a woman who's married to an unbeliever, a woman who's married to someone who has a she has a worldwide recognition and her husband doesn't. What does it look like for the African-American community? And she interviews women from that culture that tends to be a more matriarchical Christian group when it comes to church and the home. So it's a book uh, that's not just, you know, this is what a submissive wife looks like and what she does and doesn't do. It's real-life stories from uh, people we've known for decades who are trying to follow the Word of God carefully and understand what does submission look like In those particular relationships. Well, we want to look at this text again in the larger picture about submitting to those in authority, about living in a land that's not our home, about suffering in general terms uh, for the sake of Christ. Now, in keeping with the flow of the letter, the argument of the letter, Peter had instructed believers to be submissive to governing powers that servants were to be submissive, subject to their masters, and now he writes, in the same way, you wives. As we look at this passage, I want to mention that what I'm going to share is more than likely a minority view. We have two large camps today among evangelical Christians, simply what we would call egalitarian versus complementarian. The egalitarian, in short, means equal value, equal role. Complementarian, in short, means equal value, distinct roles. Now, both groups can be easily mischaracterized by equal offenders. And some of you who hear me will take issue, and others will find yourselves in agreement. My point is one that I believe is clear that is supported by Scripture, and egalitarians have contextualized their view sacrificing a consistent biblical theology. Their attempt is motivated, in no small part, to be relevant, to be kind, to be loving, to be embracing, but they at once ignore and reinterpret key Scripture to fit our cultural context rather than understanding it in its original context and how it applies in our world today. If there's one thing you've heard from me again and again and again, is that context is critical. And if we take things out of context, if we cut and paste our theology to make our theology in our own image, we are no longer conforming to God's Word, but what we want And this, again, is one of the many dangers that I call horizontal Christianity. Again and again, we're more placating uh, different voices that are squeaky wheels, if you will, rather than are we conforming ourselves to God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. Now, let me say, I'm not angry with my Christian friends who hold an egalitarian view. I believe they're in error. To find their footing, they do injustice to a number of passages in the Bible. Now, with all that is sort of a cheery introduction and just getting it out there, let's dive into First Peter chapter three, and I think you'll understand why I give this little prelude about egalitarian versus complementarian views of the roles of men and women. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1-7, to seven, you will see the same phrase, in the same way, in verse 1 and verse 7, namely, in the manner in which you relate to someone. And that's a key phrase, and I'll emphasize it as we go through the passage. 1 Peter 3, verse 1, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. In the same way, again, explains the manner in which a wife relates to her husband. Now God in creation had established an order. We call it the creation order. In Genesis chapter two to three, it is reiterated throughout the the narrative of the Old Testament in New Testament teaching, specifically in First Timothy chapter one verse nine and following, and Ephesians verses five verse twenty-two and following, Scripture is nothing if not consistent. There was a creative order how He designed things from the beginning. Submission is like many biblical terms; it's twisted by culture, and in this case, they have twisted the Scripture to apply to their cultural perspective. Now, it's interesting how in recent years and in recent months, the word misogyny or misogynist has now become part of our culture. I only heard that term uh, 30 years ago in graduate seminary when I was studying liberal scholars who called Paul a misogynist, that he hated women. That's what the word means. Now, biblical translators have clearly changed and adapted to this cultural language. Arguments run along all kinds of different lines. Uh, For example, now we have to say men and women. We have to say he and she. We can't say mankind anymore. We have to say brothers and sisters instead of reading the brethren. We can't say just the word men and expect an audience to understand that's not only directed to the male species of the audience. Part of the problem with this is, And I've just raised the question for you to think through, what's giving here? Are we really making the Bible, quote, more relevant? Or are we more concerned with cultural norms, cultural values, being PC, not getting vilified because we don't see all the right P's and Q's, and so we have to sort of regress to this language that accommodates? Well, that's my rant on this point. But submission from a biblical perspective is not demeaning, it's not sexist, it's not uh, evidence of misogyny. Submission simply means a respectful response to someone in leadership. Submission simply means a respectful response to someone in leadership or authority. Jesus is submissive to his human parents as well as his God and Father. A respectful response to someone in leadership or authority. Now, please note carefully, Peter's teaching is very specific to your own husbands. This instruction falls within the boundaries of marriage. It has wrongly been applied from this passage that all women in all places must be submissive to all men. Some of us are old enough to remember parents who grew up in the 40s and 50s and there was somewhat of that truth existed in the home. The dad had the final word, father knew best, the mom was there to be a subservient uh, helpmeet to her husband. And of course, that's not what the New Testament is teaching. To your own husbands is key here. Unfortunately, some translations have dropped the word own And so it says, to your husbands. I don't think it's wrong or redundant to emphasize your own husband. This was prevalent in the first century that a wife would follow her husband's religious preference. So this would be a gentle and shrewd way for her to relate to her husband. What is interesting, and again, it's lost when we react before we look at the context carefully, is that Peter's instruction is to aid a wife who is married to a difficult man or an unsaved man. Paul taught the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 13 and following. We could sum this up as the power of a godly wife. The wife's respectful relationship to her husband, even if he's not a believer, may well lead him to Christ. Again, keep in mind, submission is a respectful response to someone in leadership to someone in authority Peter implies that he might be one without a word it seems pretty clear when we think of a Western culture of a 5050 relationship and you and your husband you and your wife are having a big argument have you ever argued your husband or argued your wife into your point of view? One of the most brilliant things you can do in an argument is to what be quiet. Not not a condescending yes, dear, or you're always right, or I'm always wrong, or some jab as you leave the argument, but just a quiet response. Chaste here is a cumbersome word for our English Western ears, but the idea of pure or innocent makes a little more sense to us. Listen to D. Edmund Hebert. He writes, If a husband will not yield to the authoritative spoken word of the gospel he may be reached by the wife's silent demonstration of the transforming power in her daily conduct. Instead of trying to coax and argue her husband into becoming a Christian, she'll be more effective by quietly living out its saving power before him. Brownson adds, It is her translation of the gospel into life, right before the man's eyes, That proves a telling witness. You know, it's hard to argue with a changed life. That's the bottom line. For someone who knows us well, a changed life is better than a won or lost argument. Peter continues verses 3 and 4, Your adornment must not be external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Perhaps you, like me, have heard some detailed explanations of this. Uh, The context is very specific and clear. Behavior, not words, proves change. Behavior, not what a person says, demonstrates change. So, if it's not the rapper nor the Pretense of behavior, but it's the internal change that Jesus Christ brings in a person's life. Internal change manifests in what is precious to God, not in the pretense of external adornment. Now, truly, this applies to all of us, not just the woman, not the wife that Peter's instructing here. Uh, an anxious person who is less anxious. A critical person who's less critical. A nag who becomes an encouraging person. A whiner who no longer complains and whines about everything. A person who's short-fused who becomes patient. Note as well that these imperishable qualities are precious in the sight of God. We all, in fact, are not submitting to just a human authority, but to God. Again, don't miss the simple clarity of the passage. It's not what you look like on the outside. It's how God sees you on the inside. Well, Verses 5 and 6, he gives some examples. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. For in this way connects Peter's teaching as he appeals to the former times of the holy women. Peter reminds them of their history, which was all the more precious to them as they're dispersed, they're living in a place that's not their home, they're living on foreign soil. Now Peter only named Sarah. But without question, they would recall Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. These holy women were heroines of the faith. And likewise, they adorned themselves in the same fashion that Peter is encouraging. It would mean a whole lot more to the dispersed Jewish Christian than it would perhaps to you and me. Well, recent authors have mocked this text. Um, An author who I will not name has written a book completely in a pretense for humor, slamming the idea of Sarah calling Abraham her Lord. It's idiotic for you to do that. Uh, It really just reveals more, this horizontal Christianity. It's all about what I think based on my view of culture and my experience and my wisdom, and I know more than the Bible. That's really what people are saying. Now, the only time in Scripture Sarah addressed him as Lord The only reference in the New Testament and the authors that the readers would know about comes back from Genesis chapter 18, verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Indeed, shall I bear a child when I am old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Now, just a pesky detail. But did you notice she laughed to herself? Namely, it's a glimpse into Sarah's great respect toward her husband, God's chosen servant, who had been granted the most important covenant of all time. Keep this in mind. The only time in Scripture Sarah refers to Abraham as my Lord is when she's saying to herself, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure my Lord being old also? By the time Peter's audience lived, the Abrahamic covenant meant the world to them. Their journey would seem slight compared to their patriarch. It's not too far-stretched to understand the reason Peter appeals to this illustration. These believing Jews are living in a land that's not their home, and he's telling them a story about Abraham and Sarah who lived most of their life not in the land that God promised. The journey would seem small compared to the patriarch. Well, secondly, the instruction then, husbands to their wives. Verse 7, you husbands, in the same way, that's that phrase tying it together, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. The husband here is not a chauvinistic overlord. The husband is to live in an understanding way. It means knowledge of. Now, any husband I know rejoices when he reads this passage, and it doesn't say, understand your wife. It says, live with her in an understanding way, which gives us hope that we all have an opportunity. Prof. Hendricks frequently exhorted the men in seminary be a student of your wife study her likes her dislikes study what encourages her what discourages her study ways you can help her where she needs help study things that hinder her Uh, some of you have been married longer than Cindy and me others not as long I continue to say I'm still learning about Cindy I'm still studying her I'm still trying to navigate what encourages her, what helps her, what discourages her, what slows her down. And if I am to live with her in an understanding way, that's my objective. The phrase, someone weaker, again, is grossly misinterpreted. It may raise the hair on the back of your neck, and you might get all upset about it. Don't let the world Teach you theology, let's look at what the passage is and isn't saying. Now of of note here, this is not intellectual inferiority. This is not saying the woman is not as smart as the man. That's patently wrong. It is comparative. Both men and women are earthen. Both men and women are frail. Now, while most women, not all, will concede weaker could well apply to physical strength. There are those who would, again, take issue with that today. But in individual sports, for the most part, we continue to segregate men and women. So we have men's tennis and women's tennis. We have men's golf and ladies' professional golf. We don't, we don't as a rule, put those on the same level. Susan Foe writes, The wife may be considered weak because of her role as a wife. She by marrying, has accepted a position where she submits herself to her husband. Such a position is vulnerable, open to exploitation. The husband is commanded not to take advantage of the wife's vow of submission. Her acceptance of this position of weakness is submission to him is a call to her husband for consideration and thoughtful support. Linsky adds, Christian knowledge will accord the wife with all the consideration and thoughtfulness which God intends for her as a weaker vessel in the wifely relation. Well, first, this understanding way. Second, as someone weaker. Third, show her honor. Seems to me the translations that render her, treat her with respect is not quite as strong. Grudem writes, one can treat someone with a detached, formal respect, and yet give no special honor to a person at all. Honor is recognition. Honor is that she deserves a proper, good, and godly commendation. Interesting, the noun form can mean honorarium or compensation. So it follows, if you and I honor our wives, there's no room for disrespect, for ill-treatment or dismissiveness. To stress this divinely ordered relationship, Peter continues, she's a fellow heir of the grace of life. A fellow heir is not a subservient person. She's a co-heir. She's an heir of the grace of life. Christianity, unlike false religions, elevated the woman. She's no longer chattel. She's no longer property she is no longer subservient she is a fellow heir she has equal footing she has an equal value but yet a distinct role finally peter underscores a result as to living with your wife in an understanding way that honors her so that your prayers will not be hindered a husband's relationship with his wife has profound implications on his spiritual life. Please hear that again. If you are the male of the species, you're a husband to your wife, your relationship with her has profound implication on your spiritual life. I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Don Sanukian, who preached a memorable message on this passage. Uh, to the effect, he called it, uh, The Reasons Your Prayers Aren't Answered. And it's worth devotional contemplation on your own to spend time in this passage as husbands to understand your role in honoring her, giving her the proper uh, commendations she deserves to treat her as a fellow heir, knowing that your prayers will be hindered if you don't. Again, Hebert offers an alternative reading that could imply uh, to cut off meaning that the husband's failure to maintain a right relationship with his wife cuts off his practice of prayer so that men don't pray. That has some sense to it. A man's fellowship with God can be related to his relations, his closest relations with his wife. And finally, from Wayne Grudem, So concerned is God that the Christian husband live in an understanding and loving way with his wife, that he interrupts his relationship with them when they are not doing so. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished in his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor upon her. To take the time to develop and maintain a good marriage is God's will. It is serving God. It is the spiritual activity that is pleasing in His sight. And some of you may know Dr. Grudem. Uh, He was for many years a seminary professor in Illinois. And he moved to Arizona. And he publicly shared uh, the story on many occasions that uh, his wife's health was so much better when they vacationed or traveled in Arizona that he felt part of caring for his wife meant leaving a uh, a very significant job, a very important role in the seminary and graduate school where he taught. But he said, my wife's health and her well-being is more important uh, than my job and uh, my seminary role here. And of course, God has honored that uh, in, in very uh, great ways as Dr. Grudem's ministry continues. But just as illustrative, a man who can write a commentary on these roles also practices cherishing and nourishing and caring for his wife as Christ does the church. You know, at the end of the day, when we talk about the roles of men and women, we talk about marriage in our current environment, uh, we are becoming archaic to believe that marriage was designed for one man, for one woman, for life. Heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong relationship. Uh, we may well be vilified for holding such ground for holding such a position, and you may find yourself even equivocating on well, I mean the whole culture's moved this way, churches are moving this way, uh, once respected Christian leaders are now advocating for all sorts of different definitions of marriage from the beginning of scripture. God intended one man and one woman for life through a heterosexual monogamous relationship. procreation occurred. The Bible teaches this from the beginning, through narrative, through story, through wisdom literature, through didactic teaching like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. The Bible opens with a wedding, with Adam and the woman, ish, ish, ah, man and wife, both made uh, in God's image. The Bible is full of story and narrative and teaching on marriage, and the Bible ends with a wedding. and That wedding is Christ and his church. Christ being the bridegroom, the church being the bride. That he would present her to himself without any spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. Uh, Marriage is the graphic depiction of God's love for his church. That Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. How dare we meddle with and tamper with this one covenant relationship that he asked man and woman to keep. Uh, Be of good courage, Uh, whether your marriage is easy or hard. Be the man, the husband, the father that God wants you to be, regardless of your wife's response. Be the woman, be the wife, be the mom that God wants you to be, regardless of your husband. You see, we stand on our own two feet before Christ. And as a wife or a husband, the best way to a good marriage is being the person that God intended you to be.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.